Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. Day. I hope you are doing something fun to celebrate the holiday. If you have work off, I'm assuming you have work off unless you are an entrepreneur like myself, but I'm still taking the day off. Actually, my friend Liz from That Paleo Girl is visiting me, so I'm sure we're up to some fun shenanigans. So hopefully you're spending time with people you love, doing something that relaxes you, and really taking a true break. I have been so excited for you guys to hear today's podcast episode because today's chat with Dr. Keisha Ewers is one of my favorite episodes ever on this podcast. And Dr. Keisha is someone whose work I have really loved for a long time. And when I first heard about her, her work completely shifted my paradigm in the way I started working with clients myself. And I know that this is really going to impact a lot of you and it's something that Everyone who deals with chronic illness or knows somebody who deals with a chronic health condition really will benefit from. Before we get into that conversation, I want to tell you guys about this episode's sponsor, Beekeepers Naturals. You know that I love these products and I've been using them for a while now, and they have totally changed my life. If you're not familiar with Beekeepers Naturals, they create high-quality bee products that are meant to be natural solutions for different health challenges that many people face in today's modern world and also just help support your body overall to prevent any health issues from popping up. And I highly recommend you listen to episode 206 of this podcast with Carly Stein, who is the founder of Beekeepers Naturals. You will learn so much information about the bee products and the beehive and bees themselves and also many other things in that episode. It will blow your mind, and that's one of my most popular episodes. So if you really want to go in depth about this stuff, make sure you check out that episode. But I thought right now I would share a little bit about my daily routine with Beekeepers Naturals because I use these products every single day, and I cannot imagine my life without them. So first things first, when I get up, I first spray about five to 10 sprays of the propolis throat spray in my mouth. And I think it tastes delicious. And the propolis throat spray was the first product from BKN that I first fell in love with a few years ago after hearing people like Chris Kresser and Katie from Wellness Mama chatting about it. So I tried it out and now it is a must in my routine. The propolis throat spray is nature's antibiotic. It is great for supporting your immunity. It's really, really powerful for fighting any germs. It has a ton of beneficial vitamins, minerals, compounds. It's pretty much your bodyguard in a bottle. 
If you have a sore throat or cough or cold, you definitely need to up your usage of this. It really helps get rid of it quickly. If you have candida or bacterial overgrowth in your gut, this can really help with the healing process. But even if you don't, this is great for everyday immune support and prevention of any illnesses, which is why I take it every single day. And I just up my dose if I think I might be fighting something or I'm, I'm starting to feel like I might. But I take this every morning and it's really great as well if you have a high stress lifestyle, if you travel a lot, if you're an athlete, any of that. Whenever I'm traveling, this is a must. And I also will put this on my face if I have any blemishes or on my body if I have any cuts or anything on my skin that needs healing, I will put some of this on. Then I take a teaspoon and I take my teaspoon of Bee Powered, which is their hive superfood complex, and it contains all the superfoods of the hive in one product. Its base is their signature raw enzymatic honey for all of the health benefits of honey, but then you also have some propolis, some royal jelly, which is great for the brain and skin, some bee pollen, which is really great for energy, all of that's working together in the bee powered. It gives me a boost of energy and sets me up for a great day and it tastes so delicious. It is a medicinal dose though, so you really only need a teaspoon. You don't need to pour like three tablespoons of this on things. If you want to do that, then use their their regular honey. But yeah, I take this every day and I feel like the benefits really add up over time. So with consistency, I've noticed a huge difference. And if I ever forget to take this, I definitely notice a drop in my energy. I'll also use this sometimes as a face mask or on little spot areas if I have a blemish or if part of my skin gets dry or cracked. Um, if my skin's irritated, I will put this on as a mask and then wash it off. So that's my morning. And then if later on, maybe, you know, mid-morning or afternoon, I feel like I need a little brain boost. I will take half a vial to a full vial, depending on how much I need of the Beelixir brain fuel, which is their nootropic formula. And that has royal jelly, ginkgo, and other natural compounds that are really great for memory and performance and focus, concentration. It's caffeine-free, so I can take it pretty much any time of day and it helps to really fight any brain fog and really helps you focus without those jitters. This makes a huge difference in my brain function. I can immediately tell. And I take this with food because it's fat soluble. And then in the afternoon, I will take about five to 10 more sprays of the bee propolis. And then fast forward to evening, I usually do a little bit of the bee chill hemp honey, which is their honey with a little bit of high potency hemp oil and an MCT emulsion. So you're maximizing the bioavailability and absorption with those ingredients and helps me chill out before bed and get the health benefits of honey. And this makes a big difference in my sleep. Honey's a great sleep hack. If you're someone who wakes up in the middle of the night, you should test this out because sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night because our bodies are looking for fuel. And if you have a little bit of honey before bed, it stocks the liver with some glycogen so your body doesn't go into crisis mode. So I'll usually do the bee chill because I'm getting the hemp and the honey. If I'm feeling a little, you know, adventurous, I will do some of the superfood cacao honey. 
If I'm craving chocolate, I love this because I get the benefits of the honey with some cacao in there. They use Ecuadorian cacao that's organic and it tastes so good. So that's a day in the life with Beekeepers Naturals products. And again, make sure you listen to that episode, episode 206 with Carly Stein, the founder, to learn more about all the ways you can use these products, these Beekeepers Naturals products, all natural, all organic, super high quality, and truly makes a big difference in your overall health. And I've noticed huge benefits from using them every day. So if you want to try out Beekeepers Naturals, you can go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash CRW. And use my code CRW for 15% off. Again, that's beekeepersnaturals.com, B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com slash CRW. And my code CRW will get you 15% off. So let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Dr. Keisha, who I love so much. She's amazing. Dr. Keisha is an integrative medicine expert. She is a doctor of sexology, family practice ARNP, certified trauma-informed therapist, a certified death doula. She's board certified in functional medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, and she is the founder and medical director of the Academy for Integrative Medicine Health Coach Certification Program. She has been in the medical field for over 30 years. She conducted the HERT study in 2013, and especially if you are in the mental health arena, you've probably heard of the HERT study. It is the Healing Unresolved Trauma Study, which we discussed in today's episode, but this led her to developing the HERT model for understanding how past childhood trauma impacts adult health. And all of this has led to the creation of her different programs, like her You Unbroken online program for patients to heal their own trauma. She also has Mystic Medicine Deep Immersion Healing Retreats that she leads at her home. She is a popular speaker for a good reason. She is the best-selling author of Solving the Autoimmune Puzzle, The Woman's Guide to Reclaiming Emotional Freedom and Vibrant Health. She's also the author of The Quick and Easy Autoimmune Paleo Cookbook and Your Libido Story, a workbook for women who want to find, fix, and free their sexual desire. You can listen to her on Mystic Medicine Radio Show, and you can also find more from her and her programs at www.drkeisha.com, and all of that information will be in the show notes. This episode is all about the root causes of chronic health issues and really looking at the childhood trauma piece. She has such an interesting approach and again, one that when I learned about this just shifted everything for me and that's why in the past couple years, I focus so much on this side of things as well and this is a theme that keeps popping up with most people and you will see this theme coming up over and over again with different guests on the show. But I feel like Dr. Keisha really has led this wave of thinking And I'm really appreciative of that. And I know you guys are going to love this. One thing I do want to note is something was going on with the sound in this episode. So I'm not sure what happened. It's never happened to me before. And we tried to fix it. But it just wasn't going away. And the content's great. But I'm echoing in parts of it. So I apologize for that. There was nothing I could do about it. But I wanted to make sure you still got the content. Thankfully, Dr. Keisha sounds fine. I don't really talk that much anyways. Um, But I just wanted to let you know. So I apologize about that sound issue. 
Nevertheless, I know you're going to love this episode and I cannot wait to hear your feedback. Please share it if you think this will help other people heal because this is really powerful information that can really transform people's lives. I hope you're ready for it. I know you are. So let's go ahead and hop into this chat with Dr. Keisha. Thank you so much, Dr. Keisha, for coming on the podcast. I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time. I first um, was acquainted with your work a couple years ago at the NTA conference, and then I saw you again at Paleo FX this year, and everything you talk about just resonates so deeply with me, and I know that a lot of my audience will feel the same. So maybe you can just start off by introducing yourself to my listeners and just tell them a little bit about you and what you specialize in. Sure. Oh my gosh. I'm always so grateful to be able to talk to uh, people that have platforms that are really catering to what I call summit junkies and podcast junkies, (laughs) you know, like people that are excited about taking responsibility for their own health. You know, that's just always such a great place to be. So I was in just straight Western medicine as a nurse until I was 30. And I worked, you know, ICU and and hospice and kind of some high intensity uh, medicine. And then I got sick. Uh, about when I was about 30 years old, I had four children and I was a marathon runner and kind of had this high intensity adrenaline junkie sort of a lifestyle <laughs> perfectionist, you know, super mom. That's what I always that's that's who my patients are, the people who are recovering perfectionists and people pleasers. And I was definitely one of those people. And one day, and I always put this in air quotes, all of a sudden I got sick, which, of course, is not accurate. I I woke up and I had like 10 extra pounds of puffiness all over my body and I could hardly even move. It was like someone had just taken the batteries out of the Energizer Bunny. And so I got in to see a doctor and was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that has no cure called rheumatoid arthritis. And, you know, when I when this doctor was taking my history, she asked me if I had if I had autoimmunity in my um, family history. And I said, yeah, I think my grandfather was actually uh, wheelchair bound for quite a bit of his life with R.A. And so she said, OK, well, R.A. is what you have. And here are two prescriptions for you to take. And she gave me a prescription for methotrexate and for a very strong non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. And I said, okay, well, hang on. Is there anything else I can do? Because I'm very disciplined, very disciplined. And, and I said, I'll do whatever, you know, it takes to, to take care of this in any other way. And she said, no, I'm afraid, you know, you've just sort of drawn the short end of the genetic lottery, my dear. And when you get worse, not if you get worse, she says, come back and we're going to increase your medication, change the kind that we're giving you, whatever, you know, and on and on. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I basically have a terminal illness, you know, that there's no end in sight for this. And I already knew the side effect profile of these drugs. And I wasn't too pleased about that either. So on my way home, I remember just vowing to myself, I was going to find a different way. And I thought there has to be another way. So in my Western medical paradigm, there was not. So I started doing some research and found an article in the research literature where we go to look like PubMed. And 
I found an article on yoga and, and its utility and autoimmune disease. And so I went to my first yoga class and the very next day, and I remember calling my running partner and saying, I just want you to hear like how conservative I was. It was ridiculous. Actually, (laughs) I said, I said on the phone to her, I'm really worried. Like I've never hung out with people that chant, you know, and that's, that's basically what I thought of as as the people who go to yoga. Right. You have to remember also I'm 54. So this was 24 years ago before there was a yoga studio on every corner next to Starbucks. Right. So it, it wasn't as well known. And I just, I was like, I don't even think I can bend over and touch my own toes because I was, you know, I was so tight from running. And so the next morning, and this is true to form, I also laugh about this. I got up, I mapped the way to the yoga studio and I ran it. But here I had been just like two days before annihilated with exhaustion and pain in my joints. And I got up, I ran five miles to the yoga studio I rented a yoga mat while I was there. I did an hour and a half power vinyasa class for my very first yoga and then ran five miles back home. Like that's how hard I was on my body and how much I pushed it and drove it and just really was not in a collaborative relationship with it at all. I wasn't listening to it. I didn't actually honor and respect it. You know, when it said I'm tired, I didn't say, oh, well, I need to listen to that and I need to try and adjust. I didn't, I didn't even think that way. So that was really eye-opening when in the yoga class, um, my yoga teacher said this word Ayurveda and alluded to it being the medical arm of yoga. And so I ran home from that yoga class. I got on the computer and I looked up Ayurveda. And, oh, my gosh, I always talk about this, like the clouds parted and the angels sang because so much information that made so much sense is is what I read, you know, like we're not all the same. And, and all of a sudden, like all these patients from my past came flooding into my consciousness that had died from heart attacks and other things that we called idiopathic diagnoses. So whenever in medicine, we say it's idiopathic heart disease or idiopathic, whatever, if we put that word on the front end, it means we didn't know why. And I always used to say it's because we're idiots and we don't know. And so, (laughs) (laughs) so again, the lack of compassion that I had at that time shines through once again. (laughs) So, So, you know, it was just really interesting shift for me over about a six month period as I learned how to meditate I learned how to understand that my body was very unique and that there were specific ways that I needed to feed and water and take care of myself. And then there was this really, really jarring piece of information that I read that first day, which was autoimmune disease is undigested anger in that framework. And I remember like looking at my computer and being really sassy, talking back to it. I'm not an angry person, you know, and uh, because I was such a people pleaser. And so I, my my strategy for getting my needs met was always to take care of everyone and to be kind and pleasant and, and never, ever even feel angry, really. And which, of course, is explained so much. Right. And so Ayurveda says that, you know, people with autoimmune disease are perfectionists, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. They're people pleasers and they have all this poison. I always say these are the three P's of autoimmunity. 
poison of held on to pain from the past that is unresolved anger that should have been felt. And maybe they didn't even feel angry at the time because it wasn't allowed. They didn't allow themselves to feel angry. Maybe it was a powerless childhood experience where you didn't have any power and you couldn't talk back or you couldn't use, you know, your voice to say no to whatever was happening to you. And so as I started learning about this and really getting in touch with places that I really should have been angry and and digesting that and working with that trauma and healing it, you know, my RA was reversed within six months and I've never had it again. So it's really powerful to think, you know, that you can shift this way that our, I call it now the overculture, the mother culture of what we are allowed as women to feel, think, do and say to be able to adjust that to our own unique constitution. So not every person is supposed to feel their feelings in the same way or express them in the same way or um, even feed and water and take care of themselves in the same way. It's, it's this personalization. So that was my journey into this. And it's been very, very, uh, like I said, enlightening and empowering, but also um, compassion building, you know, I can honestly say now that when I, when I feel angry, well, first of all, I can feel anger now. And when I feel it, I give myself permission for it. And I have very healthy ways of expressing it that don't include temper tantrums, you know, from toddlerhood and things like that, that I can say, actually, I feel really angry about that. And, and I can check in and find out why and, and do something constructive with that. And that's, right there, a huge, I think, empowering skill that we're often not taught in our culture. That is an incredible story. And I definitely had a very similar realization with my own health journey and getting a lot of the idiopathic diagnosis, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really hard for people who haven't had the experience to sort of wrap their heads around this idea. So if there's somebody listening to this who just doesn't understand, how can that be true? How can these, you know, repressed emotions or things we haven't worked through in childhood, how can that actually lead to disease? Can you kind of shed some light on that? Sure. Actually, you know, a nice way of doing that is to use science and because it's very linear and, and logical and rational. And so there are two studies that I can talk about. One of them is a study that I conducted. And then the other one is probably the most famous trauma study that is talked about now. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. It was conducted between 1995 and 1997 by the Centers for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente. And where it emerged from was Kaiser in the 90s and, and late 80s had this weight loss program, this clinic that they ran that was really quite good and they were successfully helping people get to goal weight. But what the director of the program started noticing is a large percentage of people were dropping out before they reached goal. In spite of the fact that they were successfully getting their weight down, they would stop before they were finished. And so very wisely, he became curious and called them back in and started asking questions. And what he found out is that most of them had been sexually abused in childhood. So again, that curiosity about what's this connection led to a joint partnership with the CDC and the study that had over 17,500 participants in it. And what they asked these Kaiser Permanente members was 
a series of, of questions that actually spanned over 10 different kinds of abuse and neglect. So they said, before the age of 18, did you experience watching your mother get beaten, you know, domestic violence in your family? Did you yourself get physically abused or emotionally or psychologically or uh, sexually? Did you have a parent that was incarcerated or one that was addicted to a substance or one that died or did you go through divorce? So in other words, neglect, abandonment and abuse. Those are what we could call capital T trauma. It's the stuff that people, when they hear about that or they read my book, Solving the Autoimmune Puzzle, it actually has the quiz, the ACEs quiz that was, that was used in the study that's in there. And once you tally up your score, you know, if you answer yes to any of those 10 items, then that is a score of one, two, up to 10. And what they found is that the higher that score, and of the 17,500 some odd people that were in that study, over two thirds had an ACE score of at least one, and 80% of those had an ACE score of two or more. And you know, Dr. Filetti was reported to have broken down and wept when he saw these results because it's, it's so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Now, people will read that in my book, and I have my own story that I can share of how I came to this and why it's important, but <laughs> it, what the findings of the study and the correlations that were made were if you have an A score of one or more and the more, you know, the higher the number, the higher your risk for autoimmune disease, cancer, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, self-neglect, you know, an inability to stick to a nutritional program or an exercise program, uh, thyroid disease, you name it. It's actually like every chronic problem we have in our society today is linked to an ACE score of one or more. If you have an ACE score of six or more, it actually takes 20 years off your life, according to the study. Now, here's the thing about that, though, and it's what I write in my book. So what's your what's your ACE score? Now you have this number. Now what do you do with it? Knowing is really important, first of all. Not so that you can say, oh, I'm a victim of my childhood and oh my gosh, I am now screwed because I had all these things happen and here's what statistically I'm at risk for. But more now we know, now here are the tools that you can use to actually reverse that impact because I never write or talk about anything that you can't change. (laughs) And so, you know, so my book is all about like what to do with that. Now, in 2013, part of my background is I'm a family practice uh, advanced registered nurse practitioner, and then I also have an advanced certification in Ayurvedic medicine, and I'm a psychotherapist, and then I also have a PhD in sexology. People always, you know, like I say in my TED talk that I gave about this, um, you know, people always ask me, why sexology, you know, And, and here's the story, the answer to that is that a lot of people would come into my practice and ask for bioidentical hormone replacement. And they would say, you know, you gave this to my sister, mother, daughter, friend, and they look fabulous and they feel fabulous. And I want some of that. Well, when I would start asking questions, pretty simple questions too, like, well, you say you don't have any libido and you want hormones for that. When's the last time you had a libido level that you were happy with? Or when's the last time, if you've gained a bunch of weight and you think it's a hormonal issue, when's the last time you had a body that you were happy with? 
Now I asked a woman this, that's a new patient today. And she said, Oh, never. I've never had a body I'm happy with. And I've never had a libido. Now, estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone do not fix that problem. And so that's, that's, you know, the thing that people don't get is that if it's never been there, then there's something else going on underneath. And so what I started looking for is what is that something else going on underneath? And so I'd ask further questions. Well, do you like your sexual partner? Tears. Oh my gosh, Christina, I can't even tell you how many people cry to that question. My husband had an affair five years ago and I've forgiven him, but I don't really want to have sex with him anymore, you know? And again, I would say estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone are not going to fix this problem. This is actually an emotional issue. So I started going into the medical research, just like I did when I was diagnosed with RA and looking for any studies that would indicate this. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find any medical study that was reflecting what I was seeing in my office. So I went back to school and I got a PhD in sexology because it's the study of human relationship to yourself, to others, and to your sexuality. And I did a study called the HURT study, Healing Unresolved Trauma Study. And I asked the participants in my study, you know, if you had a, an initial hurt in your past, what's the meaning that you created up about it? And everybody has had trauma. Not necessarily the ACEs study trauma, that's capital T, but what I found in my doctoral work is when I looked at PET scans, lots and lots and lots of fMRI PET scans of brains, I saw that the parts of the brain, especially brain damage, that happens when you have trauma in your early childhood, it's your prefrontal cortex, the part that's your adult functioning brain, that actually gets damaged. That also gets damaged when you as an adult are constantly feeling overwhelmed. So in other words, if you perceive your life as overscheduled, over busy, overwhelming, you're actually creating the exact same brain changes, brain damage, shrinkage in your adult brain to yourself by that perception. And so I thought, oh my gosh. And the other thing I found when I was looking at these brains is that the parts of the brain that are required for a woman to feel sexual desire are the same ones that get hijacked from trauma. So the ones that light up when you are activated or triggered because somebody has just like pushed your little button you created in childhood, you no longer can feel libido or desire for your life or passion for all the things you love about life. This isn't just sexual. This is everything. You'll go back into this childhood state of being. And so what I what the Hertz study showed was why the ACEs study showed what it did. It showed the mechanism. It showed that everybody has trauma because any experience of rejection, we can call it lowercase T trauma, not capital T trauma, is actually experienced as a threat to survival. And if you think about this, it only makes sense. When we were in our tribal days, okay, long, long ago, when we had fires that we sat around and we ground corn and we panned hides and the men went off and hunt and gathered and the women shared stories and kept the toddlers out of the fire pit. At that time, you were reliant on each other. And so if you got rejected by the tribe and put on the outside of the firelight circle, then the saber-toothed tiger could eat you at night. So whenever you experience 
any feeling of rejection or betrayal or abandonment. You actually experience it as a capital T trauma. And so it changes your biochemistry, your hormones, and your brain in the same exact way as if you were sexually abused or had domestic violence in your house or any of the other kinds of big capital T trauma I was talking about. So it's kind of catching people up to this idea that, oh, when you go into a fight or flight response, and I often have people that say, I had a perfect childhood, my upbringing, you know, I always say, so did I. I had some sexual abuse in it from the vice principal of my elementary school, but I had an amazing childhood, right? It doesn't define it. It doesn't take away from the fact that I have this loving, fabulous family. I had this one traumatic event, but I learned how to go into fight or flight really early. And I created a meaning and a belief and a behavior that went with it. That's what the hurt model shows you is how that happens. And then it creates a button that you kind of can visualize on the outside of you. And then whoever you attract to you in relationship can just go ahead and push that button and you go off again, just how you did as a child. So it could be the meaning you created up. Like for me, um, I was sexually abused by the vice principal in my elementary school when I was in fifth grade. And he told me it was my fault because I was a bad kid. And so every time the intercom would go off in my classroom, I'd go like Pavlovian response. I would, my heart rate would go up. I would clench. I would get, you know, shallow breathing. And whether or not I was being called to the office, it didn't matter. Every time that thing crackled to life, I went into that response. The meaning I made up around that was that I'm not safe and adults in authority are not safe and which was accurate for the wise mind of that child in that particular situation, right? And then the belief I created was that I had to be perfect to even survive because he was telling me this was my fault. So I became, you know, my adaptive strategy or the behavior I created was perfectionism. So that's actually an untenable, unlivable belief structure. You can't be perfect. And perfection is not going to be the thing that you have to achieve in order to survive in this lifetime. Now, those are the kinds of meanings we make up in, with the wise mind of the child that we carry into adulthood. When we're 26, when our brains fully develop, we finally get that adult brain on board, we can go back and we can re-examine these belief structures. Usually we're not inspired to do that until we have some kind of physical illness or we keep having terrible relationship outcomes, or we keep getting fired from our jobs, or, you know, you name it, like something will keep repeating itself in our lives so that we pay attention. And it's at those moments that we get an opportunity then to confront what it is that we started believing when we were kids that's not working for us in adulthood. So those events have a very big impact on our current day health simply because you are not wired and you're not designed to be able to stay in a chronic stress response, fight or flight. And when that happens, all of your digestive system shuts down. If you're a zebra being chased by a lion and you think you're about to get, you know, become dinner, then that zebra knows it's not safe to stop and poop right now, right? So the digestive system shuts down. That zebra also knows it's not safe to reproduce. 
So all of the hormones that are required for you to feel like reproducing, right, your sex hormones, they get hijacked and go toward the adrenal system of fight or flight so that you have enough energy, you have enough oxygenated blood to your muscles so that you can get to safety quickly. Unfortunately, a lot of people remain in that state constantly. That is a baseline that got created when they were very young. And so breaking that and learning how to move easily between fight or flight when you need it into parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest or feed and breed state is an essential skill that we have to learn. And so that's the scientific answer to how you wind up sick as an adult and how it's related to how you respond to stress. And you learned it as a kid. A lot of information from Dr. Keisha. I hope you are letting that sink in. I want to take a brief pause to tell you guys about a new podcast sponsor. It is a company that I have fallen in love with. You've probably seen me using these products. I've been posting about them on social media because I'm so impressed. And these have totally changed my my life. And I'm talking about the blue light blocking glasses from Blue Blocks. There are a lot of blue light blocking glasses companies out there. And I've been using blue blockers for a few years now because I have come to understand the importance of blocking blue light as much as possible before sleep to promote sleep, to balance out your hormones, to get rid of headaches, to reduce eye strain, and so on. Humans are not meant to be exposed to so much blue light, so much artificial light before bed. It can really disrupt our circadian rhythm. So I have known all about the importance of wearing blue blockers, but honestly had a really hard time finding a company that I loved so much because when you look at the science behind it, a lot of the glasses out there have just orange lenses and you really need red lenses to block the full spectrum. And when I found Blue Blocks and I saw their products and I tried them out and I noticed a difference and I've even just given my glasses to friends to try on and they put them on, they're like, whoa, this is so different. Um, And then I learned more about their mission and everything they're doing. I just fell in love with this company and I need to tell you more about it. So what I love about Blue Blocks is that their blue light filtering lenses are backed by the latest science and they also don't sacrifice anything for cost. They have the highest quality products out there. They make their products under optics laboratory conditions in Australia. So they're not compromising and creating these products in other in other overseas countries. They're making sure it's the highest quality. And these are definitely the most effective blue light blocking glasses I've ever used. And they have three different lenses. So they have their Sleep Plus red lens, which is great for every day after sunset use. So put on these red lenses and they will make a huge difference in your sleep and your ability to wind down at night. So I recommend you put these on two to three hours before bedtime and then take them off once you're in bed with the lights off. And again, these lenses for nighttime use are are red. So they're not just orange, they're red. So they're blocking the full spectrum that you need to block based on the science. So they're going to block 100% of the blue and green light coming at you. 
And then they have their blue light clear lens, which is a blue light filtering lens for during the day. This is great for people who work under artificial lighting during the day. And this targets the frequencies of light that can cause migraines, headaches, macular degeneration, and digital eye strain. Great for people who are working on the computer all the time. You've probably seen me wearing these. They look clear, but they have a slight tint. But they are almost clear. Um, you probably see me wearing these on social media. And then their Summer Glow Yellow Lens is a blue light blocking lens meets color therapy. So this is also designed for daytime use and is made for people who work under intense artificial lighting and if they deal with any migraines, anxiety, depression due to the change in seasons, this is great for you. So this is going to work by blocking the portion of blue light responsible for those issues and it helps to uplift your mood because of the color therapy. If you are not sure which type of lens to get, just contact their customer service and the founders of Blue Blocks. They answer directly and they will let you know specifically based on your job, what you do during the day, which lenses to get. Like when I learned about all the care they take in doing this, I was blown away, but they want to make sure everybody gets the exact right pair for them. So, and they encourage this. They say, just email us and tell us, you know, what you do for work, like what, where you are, what the lighting is like, and your job, and we will tell you exactly which lens would be best for you. They also have a ton of frames to pick from. They have so many cute styles, and it's not just, you know, three or four different lenses. They have, I think, about 20 different sets of frames you can pick from. I have three different frames, and I love all of them, so you have plenty of options. And you can also send in your own frames. So you can send them an old pair of your frames or your favorite frames, and they will turn them into blue blocks for you. And just again, the benefits of wearing blue blockers, there are so many. You'll get more energy, you'll have better sleep, deeper sleep, more dreams, less headaches, you will feel more calm and relaxed, it reduces your eye strain, it can help get rid of insomnia, and helps to improve your mood, makes you happier, more positive, and helps to balance out your hormones, and really helps to optimize your circadian rhythm. And if that wasn't enough, something I love so much about Blue Blocks is that they have a charity partnership. So they partner with a company called Restoring Vision in their buy one, gift one campaign. So for each pair of Blue Blocks they sell, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who then will gift those glasses to someone in need. So when you purchase a pair, you are helping out somebody who uh, doesn't have the best eyesight and can't afford a pair of glasses. So I love that social mission as well. I wear my blue blocks every day. I wear my blue light glasses every day while I'm working because I'm on the computer and I'm in more natural light. I don't have harsh artificial light on me since I work from home. And then every evening I put on my Sleep Plus red lenses and it helps me so much. And if there's ever a night where I skip it, I definitely notice a difference in my sleep. So obviously I had to get you guys a discount. So if you want to get a pair of these glasses, this is the best investment you can make. You know, you make an investment in glasses and then you have them forever. So I highly recommend it. And you definitely want the highest quality out there because it's not worth it to get some of the orange ones or the ones that aren't produced with the best quality and then it not even really be helping you out. You might not realize it. So I really recommend getting a pair of blue blocks. So just go to blueblocks.com to check out all the different options 
and different styles and that's where you can get them and you can use my code wellness for 15% off of your pair so you can go to blueblocks.com and again my code wellness w-e-l-l-n-e-s-s will get you 15% off of your glasses I'm super excited for you guys to try your blue blocks and when you get them in the mail if you're using them take a pic tag me I want to see you in them. I want to hear what you think. I love uh, hearing your feedback about some of my favorite products. Okay, now that I've told you all about my blue light blocking glasses, which I'm wearing right now, let's go ahead and hop back into this conversation with Dr. Keisha. You have such an incredible story and I really appreciate you sharing that with the with the audience. And I'm, I'm curious, like how long was that happening until you spoke up about it? I spoke up pretty quickly, but I spoke up in a way that people couldn't understand. Because remember, when you're a kid, you're not powerful and you don't have autonomy. And and when I was a kid in the 70s, like I was, it was 1975, I was raised with no television. And I don't know if it was the lack of television or if it was just the time period. I was a Navy brat. So we moved 21 times by the time I was 14. So I'm not sure if it was just my family or if it was the era, but like at 10, I didn't know the terms like sexual molestation. I didn't know, you know, we didn't have internet, you know, <laughs> I didn't, we weren't on iPhones at the age of 10 and we certainly didn't have movies that are watchable by 10 year olds, you know, today, like that when I was 10. So I didn't, I don't even think I knew the word sex, quite frankly. And so I didn't know how to convey. I didn't have the words to convey what was happening. I told my mom, but I told her in a way that went like this. I don't want to go to school. I have a headache. I have a stomach ache and I would cry. That's how I told her. And so, you know, she would ask me like, what's happening for you? And I would just say, I just, I can't go to school. I don't want to go to school. Now, if you're a parent and you're listening to this, if there's some large behavioral change from your child, you need to pay attention to that <laughs> because I was always a very, very eager student. I loved school. So this was a very big departure from my normal way of being. Now, I tried to tell teachers, a couple of teachers on the playground, and I was told to get my little white trash you know, ass back on the playground and play and leave them alone. So I, you know, there was a lot of racial discrimination in the school that I was in. I was one of two white kids. So, you know, part of what I was being told was that I was white trash and this was why, why it was happening and, you know, from my black vice principal. So, you know, I did try to say something, but definitely not with the kind of power that a 54-year-old woman who has learned how to express herself and is very articulate could go, okay, everybody sit down, shut up. This is what's going on. And I need something to change. Of course, the kid doesn't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was right away that I said something, but you know, like, did I really say something that people could understand? Clearly not. So then at what point were you able to communicate what that happened in a way that other people could understand? We moved. So it stopped because I was in the Navy and we moved. <laughs> so um, it wasn't until I was diagnosed with RA and I started learning how to meditate. And one day I was sitting in meditation and this word autoimmune started kind of dancing in front of my third eye space. And, and I started really looking at it like 
from an observer's standpoint, looking at this word. And I thought, oh my gosh, auto, autoimmune means I'm attacking myself. That means that there's no one else to blame for this. And all my searching for the thing outside of me is not going to work. This is actually happening as an inside job. And it means I'm trying to kill myself. And so what I really got in that moment is I'm committing suicide in a societally acceptable manner. That was very, very illuminating for me. In that moment, I just sort of breathed with that for a minute. And I thought, I don't want to die right now. So there's got to be a time in my life when I did want to die and my cells are just following through. And so sure enough, science tells us that it can take anywhere from 10 to 30 years to develop a full-blown autoimmune disease. Now, this happened to me at the age of 10. And when I traced this little breadcrumb trail backwards in my mind to when's the first time I wanted to die, I landed on this event. And I saw this little girl who was so confused and really like wanted to die in all ways possible. I wanted out. I did not understand my life. I couldn't understand what was going on. I wanted to die. And I saw her and I went, oh, this has to be connected. I didn't know anything about the ACEs study. I hadn't conducted the HERT study, you know, and I thought she wanted to die. And so one of the things I always tell people is that, and I used to teach intuitive development classes, um, I see like, I see things in my meditation that are going to happen a lot, you know, and, and I'm very intuitive and talk to people's guides before they ever come and see me and ask what they need. And, you know, I'm, I'm very intuitive. And what I realized in that moment was that little girl learned those skills because she was looking for answers and started tuning in to other energies right? It didn't feel safe on planet earth. And so she started tuning into angels and and other energies and feeling safer in the spirit realm than in the physical realm. And it struck me that the more your, your intuition is on point and the more psychic you are, you could say, the more trauma you have in your background, because you actually learned how to dial in to these other frequencies. You had to learn how to read a room quickly. You had to learn how to read people quickly. You had to ascertain what they were about and if they were safe. And I I really understood like, oh, this is actually the silver lining of all of this. I started seeing all the silver linings and it was a really interesting meditation. So when when we start thinking about post-traumatic stress, you know, PTSD, I've started really talking a lot about post-traumatic growth. Like this is a, people don't usually love hearing this at the beginning, but this is one of the things that uh, I think of as one of the best experiences that ever happened to me in my life was this 10 year old kid's experience. Right. And RA was one of the best things that ever happened to me. They're on par with the birth of my children because they were the pivotal times that I had to learn the skills to evolve. I had to really learn about something I didn't know anything about. You know, I had to up level my skill development. And so I always, when I give these talks around trauma, I always try and help people understand you're never going to get to that point instantly. You have to go through a process. And as you're going through the process, you start to understand 
why you are the way you are today and have gratitude and appreciation for everything that formed you. And that will include some of the teachers you didn't really love. You know, when you think about elementary school and high school, we didn't always like our teachers, but oftentimes the ones we didn't like taught us the most, right? That's the same with life's events. We don't always like the challenges we get handed in life, but if we're willing to, we can learn a lot from them and far more than times of peace and complacency. I would agree 100%. I think sometimes it just takes time for us to realize that, you know, you look back and realize how much it shaped you, but it's totally true. Um, And I, I often feel like the wisest teachers I have, they've, it's true. Like they've all gone through something really traumatic. um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's, you know, just a coincidence, but I want to circle back to the, the idea of trauma and talking about trauma with a little T and kind of give some concrete examples of what could still be categorized as trauma that people might not think of as trauma so like I know you talked about like feeling abandoned or rejected but like kind of some concrete examples because I think sometimes people will will hear this and they'll just be like well I haven't had some major you know quote trauma sure and they don't realize how how they probably do (laughs) well I'll tell you I work a lot um healing people's trauma and like immersion retreats and then on zoom you know on video conferencing with people all over the world and I'm going to tell you some of the things that I've helped heal that have been trauma that people haven't realized right that that as you're to your point may be considered a little bit more subtle so first I'm going to give you a story that gives you a context for why people don't identify trauma sometimes in their own lives it's because we compare So we have the internet, we have the news, and we see some of the things people go through. People will read my book, and I talk about this, you know, traumatic event of sexual abuse, what I did with it, and and then how I give you a kind of a workbook-style way of stepping through it. And the way that I really started understanding that lowercase p trauma is just as important (laughs) is by looking at these PET scans, but also... One day I had been in the ICU um, and one of my patients was like a little two-year-old girl with, with leukemia and she was bald and she didn't have one arm. It was um, cut off above the elbow because um, they'd had to remove it for bone cancer. And I had started an I, you know, with children, we start IVs usually in their scalps. And so I had started an IV that, that evening in her scalp and she hadn't even flinched like she was so used to being in a hospital in a crib. It just didn't even like cause her to flinch. So I was still in my scrubs when I got home and my first daughter came to me and she had her little finger out and she said, mommy, will you take my splinter out? It hurts. And I said, sure, honey, sit down here on the steps and I'll go grab, you know, what I need. And I went to get tweezers and a little pen and, um, we sat down across from each other and she handed her finger over to me and I hadn't even like I'd taken her finger, but I hadn't come near her with the pen or the tweezers. And she just started screaming and I mean, just blood curdling screaming. Right. And I remember sitting back and looking at her with this compassion in my eyes and just feeling waves of love for her. Cause I remember thinking like of this little kid in the ICU that day, And thinking, thank goodness that this is all my daughter has for trauma right now. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, if this is the worst it gets and what causes screaming for her, thank 
goodness, right? So I want people to really get that. Your bar for trauma is your bar. And the worst that it is, is your big capital T trauma. So some examples are, I did a therapy for a woman one time who was the third of three girls. And she was a grown woman at this time in her early 40s or late 30s. And and her big trauma was um, that, and she didn't know it until we started talking and it came out, uh, that she never got new clothes, that she always had to wear the hand-me-downs from her two older sisters. And so there's that event, but then it's the meaning you make up as a kid about that and the belief that you put in place about that. And then what is the adaptive behavior you create about that? That becomes the most important part because then that's what you carry into adulthood. So for her, the belief she created is she wasn't important. And the behavior that she created around that was that she acted out like, she was one of those people that was like a know-it-all had to interrupt everybody. She just wanted to be noticed. Like she was a child. I remember my son, when we do home movies, sometimes my oldest son would be hopping up in front of the lens, like pay attention to me, pay attention to me. You know, and you can kind of like, look at me, look at me, look at me. That's how she was behaving. And it was affecting her relationships and her jobs. And she was getting performance reports about this and she couldn't understand. She couldn't see it in herself. And so when I took her back to this time in her life, she started weeping like, oh, this is where this came from. And so wearing hand-me-downs, you know, living in a fairly affluent socioeconomic class, going to an Ivy League school, you know, you would think poor kid, poor little girl, poor little rich girl. But indeed, This was a big trauma for her. And because it didn't hit the big T abuse levels, she didn't recognize it. Um, Another one was, I tell this story a lot because it was um, a man, I live in Seattle area and uh, it's the land of Microsoft and Starbucks and Amazon and Boeing. We have a lot of engineers in this area. And so this, this man came to me who worked for Microsoft and he said, I cannot get up in front of groups. I sweat. It's called social anxiety disorder. So he had been put on a beta blocker. He'd been put on anti-anxiety medications by his primary care doc. Nothing was working. And someone told him that I could help him without medication. And so he came to see me saying, you know, his big goal was I need to be able to get up and give a presentation without soaking my shirt. It's humiliating. And I said, okay. And so we went We went back through, you know, using the structure that I use. And it turns out that the first time he remembers being humiliated was being in um, a middle school cafeteria with his lunch tray, walking past a group of girls at a table, one of which he had a crush on, tripping over his shoelace, crashing onto the floor on his face and everything flying, food going everywhere. And of course, you know, you remember those trays, it made so much noise. And of course, the entire lunchroom erupts laughing at him, right? Mm -hmm. So he made uh, the the meaning he made around that was that he was a klutz. And the belief that he created from that event was that he couldn't trust himself in front of groups because he would make a fool out of himself. And so the behavior that he adopted was to become invisible. And so 
he actually never ate in another lunchroom. He ate in the library for the remainder of his school career, never around other people. And so now he gets into a career situation and he's in his 40s and he still can't get up in front of groups, but he doesn't know why. So we did some work around that and then he got to break free of it. So these these traumas that we don't consider traumatic, we consider just part of childhood, right? And are fairly innocuous. We create meanings and beliefs and behaviors to associate with them. And those may not serve us in adulthood. And those that's how it'll show up. It'll show up with something being disrupted in adulthood and we can't figure out why. So, uh, you know, you can name, oh gosh, a million of them being in a spelling bee and screwing up an easy word. I remember I was a Sterling scholar in my high school and I was the favorite to win the scholarship. And I, my um, service project had been to take blood pressures of senior citizens in my town and documented trends. And I did a little study around it. And so when the, um, it was also very introverted in front of groups, just like this fellow because of being a Navy brat, like I'd move into schools in the middle of the school year. And so the Sterling scholar interview process is oral. And I walked in and here's a, there's a table with a whole bunch of adults. Remember the meaning I made up was adults in authority are not safe. And so I walk in as a senior and I know my stuff, but what the very first question, one of the men asked me was explain diastole. Now diastole, like somebody just hearing that off the street may not know what that is, but that's the bottom number of your blood pressure. And you know, what it signifies is the filling of your atria in your heart. And I could not come up with one of those words I just said. And I just went silent, frozen, stiff. And so I totally tanked the interview, walked out and burst into tears. And now when I think about that, I look back and I have so much compassion for that poor 18 year old girl, because what I got was I wasn't 18 anymore. I was 10. And I was trying to talk to teachers on the playground and tell them that I was in trouble and that there was this vice principal that wasn't safe. A 10-year-old cannot explain diastole. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's what happens. We wind up, anyone can identify with this that's gone into an argument and gone frozen. And then they go back later and go, I wish I would have said this and this and this and this. That's because you actually froze back to the first time you experience the feeling of being incompetent, not pretty enough, not smart enough, not swift enough, whatever it was, right? And you can't function at the level that you're being asked to in that moment. So then you go and you get yourself soothed and you, you get some time and you come back to your adult self. You go back and you replay the thing in your head and you go, why didn't I say this and this and this and this? That's why. So every one of those little things is a trauma. Okay. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it is. And I really appreciate that explanation. And I'm sure people listening are like racking their minds. And I'm sure something came to mind when you were giving those examples. And I also really like that you touched on the fact that I think a lot of people don't 
consider things that have affected them to be trauma because of this comparison game. And I was just having this conversation with a friend recently who, you know, she's actually been through a lot of trauma and she was talking to a family member and he made some comment like, oh, poor you, you rich white girl. And Mm. she was explaining to me, she goes, I feel like I can't, um, mm. feel sorry for myself because I, I do, I'm provided for, you know, I'm a white woman, my family is wealthy and I have these traumas, but like, I have so much to be grateful for that other people don't have. So I feel like it's unfair of me to, you know, feel bad for myself. And that just broke my heart. And it was like, just because you have money and you're a white woman doesn't mean you're not allowed to feel emotions around things that have happened to you before. So I'd like to actually say something to that because it's really important. I was doing therapy um, on a a man that's in his, I think he's about 53 and also, you know, heterosexual, white, um, affluent male. And he he told me what was happening for him. And I said, um, oh, poor little heterosexual, right? White, affluent male. He looked at me and he goes, what? And I said, yeah, that's that's what you're experiencing is that place in our cultural trauma right now, where especially men have this problem right now, where you're actually not given permission to have feelings. Now, feeling sorry for yourself doesn't get you anywhere, but validating your feelings to your little kid self who probably wasn't permitted to have their feelings and express them is an important first step. First, you have to feel it. Now, wallowing in it and staying in, in, in a victim mentality gets you absolutely nowhere, you know, but there's a process to get you from A to Z. And so first acknowledging that where are you cutting off permission for you to have your feelings? That's first and foremost. Like I said, in the very first part of this interview, when I realized I didn't even permit myself to feel anger. I didn't recognize it in myself. I wasn't allowed to feel it. It wasn't because anyone told me I couldn't. It was because that's the meaning I made up around the mother culture or over culture that we live in and my role in it and the, the, I guess it could be family of origin too, but also the larger cultural space. We live in a cultural soup of trauma right now where we are an autoimmune disease. We're attacking each other. We are polarized between political parties, between religions, between generations, between genders, between races. Crazy. Socioeconomic strata. So every human and every other sentient being on this planet is permitted to feel what they need to feel. It's when you get stuck in those feelings or you prevent them and stomp them down that you wind up having trouble. And so, the you know, I always tell people compare and despair because that's what it's going to cause is a lot of despairing. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. So thank you for saying that. And I think it kind of naturally leads into, so what do you do from there? How do you work through this trauma? Like if someone, let's say someone has an autoimmune disease, for example, and they, um, and they can connect maybe a main event a trauma that they think is is related to it so how do you start working through that well even if they can't and that's what they always you know most people will say is i can't figure out what would be the thing right there's no smoking gun usually 
So, and also another barrier to this work that a lot of people feel is I don't want to go back and relive that stuff. You know, I don't want to think about this and I don't want to talk about it. And that's also fair. You don't have to. The process that I use is really laid out um, in a few different ways. Uh, Solving the autoimmune puzzle. I have it as worksheets that you can kind of go through. And I talk about a program in there that I developed called You Unbroken, which is trauma healing on your computer from your home. And inside of that program, I have these hard stops. And I'll say, look, if you can't do this part, that means you need to go what I call borrow a brain. And the same, I have a graphic in my book that has a brain chasing its spinal cord and a dog chasing its tail. And I always say, our minds chase its tail, T-A-L-E, the way a dog chases its tail. And so you can't actually expect the same mind that made up those meaning beliefs and behaviors to then solve them without help, because you need to see, have someone help you see the patterns. So there's several ways of doing that. The first one, uh, like I said, is find, I have like 10 different emotional resilience skills that in the UN Broken program that's on my, on my website. And in there, I'll say, if you can't do this one, then here's what, here's how to shop for a therapist that does this kind of therapy. And I always talk about finding a therapist the same as if you were to go find a pair of shoes. You know, I, I, I say this from stages all the time. You've probably heard this before, Christina. <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you decide like you want a pair of um, teal green pumps to go with the dress you're wearing to the wedding on the weekend, I actually just had this experience. I have a wedding this weekend and <laughs> I was looking for a pair of teal, teal, teal green pumps. And so I don't walk into a shoe shop and find heels that are the right color, try them on, walk around in them, and then go, oh, this one's pinching. I'm never going to last through the dancing, you know, at the wedding in these shoes. And then put them back on the shelf and walk out the door and say, shoes don't work for me and never wear shoes again. And people often do that with therapy if they have a bad experience with a therapist. Talk therapy does not work for trauma work. doesn't work. And so, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot about people doing plant medicine, um, which I'm also, I, I work with plant medicine, or you'll hear people doing somatic work and, and doing different techniques, right? But if they don't have the integration portion that goes back to help you find the meaning, the belief, and the behavior you created as a child, it will not stick. You'll just feel better for a while, but then you're going to keep looping into these buttons again where people can keep pushing them. So I always want you to go look at like the first, mm, the last time you can remember being triggered. Let's say your husband left his socks on the floor for the 45,000th time, you know, and you're just like, gosh, you're never going to pick up your socks, right? Feel the emotion in your body. Like, what do you feel about that? locate it, like really locate it in your body. Oftentimes when we have trauma in our background, it's hard to feel the body because we very wisely learned how to dissociate from the body. If it was the subject of a lot of pain, we were able to get out of the body pretty quickly. 
So then as an adult, you're going to be doing that same thing, you know, dissociating from your body. And then that might mean that you eat without realizing what it's doing to your weight. It might mean that you are addicted to certain substances and you, you won't put the, the connection together about how this is impacting your health. So it's like learning where do you hold your emotions in your body? And then what is it that you hear a lot in your own head, like watch your language for a good 24 hours. How many times are you shooting all over yourself? You know, I should have done that. I could, you know, what is it? And, and just watch, how do you speak to yourself? That's going to give you a lot of information to begin with right there. And that has nothing to do with big traumas in your past. It's really learning, like, how are you with you in the present? What are the voices in your head saying, you know, am I saying to myself, oh, I can't do that. I'm not good enough or that won't work. It's too hard or I'm so overwhelmed. You know, um, those are actually gateway drug words that signal that you are a perfectionist, but you haven't realized it. I'm so overwhelmed. That's probably the most often repeated term in my office that I hear if I had a nickel (laughs) for every time I hear it. So that that actually means I have set myself up to have to be perfect at whatever it is I take on. And so I am overwhelmed if I don't accomplish everything on my to do list or if I don't do my mothering exactly right or if I don't do my job and without criticism from the people around me, then I'm I'm not worthy of whatever, you know, and then I might go into behaviors that are self-sabotaging as a result to numb out. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 You have to kind of deal with the now Mm -hmm. and what's going on in your life. And then it, it creates a trail for you. Like I did in my meditation that day, you know, like, Oh, autoimmune. That means I'm killing myself. When's the first time I wanted to kill myself. And then I was able to go backwards from there. I usually tell people do this with some help. And so like, this is what I do all day, every day is I do immersion retreats to help people heal this stuff. But the book that I wrote about this is a great first step because it has every single one of these, how to do it. So you can sit in your own house, you can digest it at your own pace, then you can recognize your own patterns. So is a lot of it just building the awareness then? No, because awareness only gets you so far. That's first step. Mm -hmm. Then you actually have to confront and, and, you know, the need to change it, I call this the misery to motivation ratio. And you have to make the changes in your lifestyle. I can't just be aware of it. My daughter has this, my daughter is a very wise young woman. She's, she's 26 now and pretty funny. And what she'll do is she'll do some like unaware kind of behavior. And then she'll go, well, at least I'm aware of it. Right. And it's a joke in our family. Oh yeah. Well, at least I'm aware of it because actually awareness only gets you to the threshold of the doorway. Then you have to walk through it. And integration is ultimately your goal. You're wanting to integrate a new set of skills, but awareness gets you to the door. So can you give an example of like, like of the integration side? Okay. So I just worked with a woman today on zoom and she she just got divorced and she now 
her husband, her, her soon to be um, ex-husband or parenting partner. And she has children that are ranging from teenage to out of the house. Um, he now can't control how they behave with her. And she wants everybody to be friendly and she wants everything to, um, she wants everyone to take the high road. And she's been working with me for a long time. So she has these goals that come from her level of development because she's been working on herself, but her family hasn't been. And so she's very frustrated. And she, she said, I need to do an appointment with you. Um, and when I got on with her today, she said, I'm out of control with my food. And I said, well, what does that look like? What do you mean? And she said, I just, I'm like eating everything in sight and gaining weight. And she said, I know better. I shouldn't be doing this. So those are all clues, right? That right there. I know better. I shouldn't be. I'm out of control. I want control. And so she knows that those are words that she needs to be aware of. And she's been listening to them going through her head. And so she knew she had to reach out to me because she's feeling all the shame about not being successful at the things that she knows that she can do better. So we worked today and what I did was I I helped her to understand that when you are a child that goes through trauma, you have certain strategies you create for yourself to self-soothe. So for her, it was food. And I said, you know, when you have an unpredictable, chaotic, uncontrollable environment that you live in as a child, where do you go to find solace, self-soothing and groundedness? You withdraw into what I call your turtle shell. So I said, how is your turtle shell decorated? You know, that you go to now as an adult, it's like you're picking up your baby blanket again and and self-soothing. And I said, what's on the cupboards in there? And she's like, Reese's. And I said, yeah, exactly. Right. That was what you hoarded. That's what you love to eat when you were a child. And that's what brought you some comfort. And so I said, you're going back into your turtle shell because you can't control. It's chaotic. It's unpredictable. This behavior as you guys are reorienting what it looks like to be a family right now. And so I said, how about if you give yourself different options? Like, and I got her in touch with what her wise woman self would, would give her as options. And I said, you actually don't have free will when you're in this kind of a situation because you're going to go into, when you go into fight or flight, you go into your child brain. Your child brain, like I said earlier, does not give you ability to navigate complex situations. So she's going back into her eight-year-old self whenever she has some trigger from her family reorienting and, and you know reestablishing what it means to be a family and she feels hurt. So I said, it's no wonder that you can't control your food right now. You're not meant to. Control is the biggest addiction that humans have. And Mother Nature shows us constantly that we never did have control. We never will have control. And any control you think you have is a, is a delusion. So how, what control do you have is what you can build as a skill set as an adult. So what would be some other ways that you can do this? And And so... You know, what you're really looking for is nourishment, nourishment, right? Loving nourishment. And so what are some options for that? And so we went through what those were. And I said, so the next time you're triggered, you'll have those options sitting there. And you'll also have your turtle shell. And depending on how bad the trigger is, 
you may or may not be able to reach for one of the other options, but at least they're going to be there floating and you may wind up in the turtle shell eating Reese's again. And this time you're not going to shame yourself for it. You're going to go back to that little kid and you're going to give her some love. And then the next time you're triggered, you're going to practice reaching for one of the others. That's called integration. It's called building a new skill. You have had, if you're, let's say like 47 years old, right? And something like this is going on. You've had like 47 years of mastering this other way of (laughs) self-soothing. So it's not going to be an overnight process and it's not a light switch to be able to go from binge eating when you're stressed to creating other alternatives. So integration is a process that takes time and you have to step it through. And so we did some trauma release therapy around that. And then we created a different paradigm that she could kind of move into. So that's, that's what I'm talking about when I say integration. Okay. And something I also wanted you to touch on was, you know, sometimes people have trauma that is associated with a certain person. And I've heard you talk before about like, learning to find gratitude for those who cause the trauma. And I think sometimes a lot of people, you know, they might think of a certain person who really affected them and they have these emotions built up and they don't really know how to navigate that. Do What do you suggest if someone um, has that type of situation where they there's somebody who they feel like, you know, did them wrong and moving forward from that? All right, that's a really great question because in my doctoral research, one of the interventions that I use to help people move out of fight or flight is forgiveness. But forgiveness, the way that I talk about it from a scientific standpoint, on studies that have been done, is not the kind of forgiveness you hear from a church pulpit where it's just like love your neighbor as yourself and forgive them 70 times 7. That's actually not possible as an overnight process and people will do it in church or they'll say, I should be doing this. And they'll tell themselves they forgive somebody. But then when they see them, they go into fight or flight again. That's because they haven't done the actual integration work of doing what I call the mirror process. And that's going to be this interview way too long, but um, that's in my book too, and solving the autoimmune puzzle. So what what you have to understand is that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things and people lump them together. They always think like if I forgive this person or if I'm grateful for them to be my teacher, which again comes at the end of the process, not the beginning, then it lets them off the hook, right? It means that they never got their just dues or they never got punished for what they did to me. And that is absolutely true. And it's not up to us to, to, you know, divvy out punishment for things that have been done because we too have been perpetrators. So what we have to understand is we have hurt people and we are hurt by them. And so the forgiveness process is uh, a really important one to do, but reconciliation is not. If the person that has hurt you, so for example, my vice principal, I use him all the time as an example, because I learned through this process that I call mirror work to see the same, uh, you know, like see him as a mirror of me and look at the ego traits that we share and go, oh, I've totally done this. I've never molested children sexually, but I've definitely um, misused my power. I've definitely been mean in my life. I've definitely um, not been in integrity. In fact, if you're a parent, you've been all those things, you know. And so I I went, oh, 
So now what he's become is a teacher for me by showing me what it feels like to be on the other end of those characteristics. Now I can watch for them in myself and heal them and learn how not to be like that. And I can get on level ground with him. Now I'm not in this judgmental victim space where I'm above him and I'm saying, I would never do something like that. How dare you? You know, like I, that's, that judgment place is the place of danger because you'll never get better. You'll never get better and you'll never evolve if you stay there. So once you can get on the same level with your perpetrator and actually forgive them and see them as a mirror, then you can move forward. Now, you don't have to call them up and say that you just did all of that. Okay. If they demonstrate that they are uh, contrite for what they did, if they demonstrate the willingness to get help for what they did and to um, adhere to boundaries. And, you know, a lot of this is also you setting boundaries with yourself and others. If, if all that stuff gets into place and it's a valuable relationship to you, like, let's say you had someone that you were partnered with and they had an affair, you, you know, all of this would then be very compelling to try to do right together. Then you can reconcile, but only then. So if they never demonstrate contrition, if they never demonstrate that they're safe, they never demonstrate a willingness to learn new skills because whatever happens when someone has hurt you, it's because they're not skillful. It's not because they're evil. It's because they're not skillful. And so if they demonstrate a willingness to learn new skills and you yourself will go learn new skills, then you can evolve together. But again, if it's not a a valuable relationship like parent, child, spouse, that kind of thing, um, friends, then you can just do this on your own and not do the reconciliation part. Okay. I think also sometimes people just feel obligated to the reconciliation part, especially if it's someone who's like a family member? Yeah, you don't have to. If you've got a borderline personality parent who is absolutely entrenched in blaming everything outside of themselves and never taking responsibility, then um, having good boundaries is really essential for you and your health. So I, I help people navigate this daily. It's really important conversation, actually. Yeah, and... One question I have, though, is so do you believe that all physical health issues are rooted in some type of trauma? Uh, The way that I talk about this is from the framework I use. It's called the freedom framework. And every chronic thing, it it doesn't matter what it is. It can be autoimmunity, cancer, depression, uh, weight issues like insomnia. It doesn't matter what it is. The same four corners of your unique puzzle are going to be in place. And the, one of the corner pieces is genetics. Another corner piece is your digestive health. Another corner piece is toxic exposure and your body's ability to get rid of those toxins. And those can be emotional, mental, spiritual toxins too, not just physical. And then the fourth one is trauma and how you manage your stress in, de- in current time. So yes, all four of them are interrelated Trauma will actually upregulate genetics like it did for me that you probably don't want to have upregulated. Trauma will break down the gut wall so that you have leaky gut. Trauma it will form um, because you don't have a fully developed brain yet, meanings and beliefs that are according to a child's face. 
that are toxic when you get into adulthood, like I have to be perfect to survive as a toxic belief. So those kinds of um, those four corner pieces are the same for everybody, but how they show up is unique to everyone. So that's what's so fascinating about this. There's never one diet that fits everybody. There's never one way of dealing with any situation that's the same for everyone. We're all very unique. We're snowflakes. And so using that as a framework to then personalize, and then there are like the edge pieces for the puzzle that, you know, I go into detail on solving the autoimmune puzzle and you make it your own puzzle. So it's ultimately the answer is yes. But it doesn't mean that it, it's never going to be just that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. So, so fascinating to me. And I, I love your approach. And also, like, I feel like I've, I've heard you tell so many different stories and examples that are all so powerful. And I love hearing all, like, just so many different people struggling with different things. And it's coming from different types of trauma. And I just feel like it pulls it all together so nicely. So I really appreciate you sharing all of that and all of your work. And thank you again for coming on the show. It's been so amazing chatting with you. And can you just tell everybody where they can learn more from you and get get your books and all of that? Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, actually, uh, drkeisha.com, D-R-K-E-E-S-H-A. Uh, .com. And I mean, I would love to share. Uh, I have this 21 day quick start guide if if listeners want to engage with that. It's 21 days of helping you understand all the stuff I just talked about with these very simple little things you can do to start transforming uh, your thoughts, your genetics, your your gut and the way you do your stress. And it's in the form of 21 different emails um, that help you with very, very tiny adjustments you can make. I'm really, people always say like, how do you do everything you do? You know, and I always just say, because I'm very efficient and I don't use my own energy. I live in what, you know, flow. And I always ask every morning, how can I be of service and then drop into that? So it's not my energy I'm using. And so you know, if, if you can make those kinds of adjustments, then your fatigue goes away and your mitochondria can come back and your adrenals will get back online and your hormones will balance and you'll be happy because your neurotransmitters will then be great because your microbiome is happy, you know. And so it's, it's just giving you these adjustments that are pretty efficient. Um, I don't like long, long daily routines because I don't, I wouldn't be able to follow it myself. And so you can actually go to um, drkeisha.com forward slash quick start and we'll send that to you and you can kind of get started with implementing. Remember, integration is the most important word. So integrating some of these things and see for yourself, like what's the outcome? I get email all the time that says, oh my gosh, this one thing was so incredible it changed everything. Thank you. You know, and I love that because, uh, you never know, like you could be right on task with nine tenths of everything. And then this one thing you adjust it. And now it's a 10 out of 10 life, you know? Yeah. Thank you. We'll put that in the show notes. So everyone has the, the link to that. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Thank you for coming on. And I can't wait for everyone to hear it.
Thank you so much. And thanks for the work you're doing and the platform that, you know, people can reach out to and, and start taking their health in their own hands. Huge thank you to Dr. Keisha for coming on the podcast and sharing all of that information. Please share this with someone who you think it could help because this is really, really important for anyone who is struggling with a chronic health issue. It is game changing. All of Dr. Keisha's links will be in the show notes and you can find more from her at drkeisha.com. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it. I love when you guys share it on social media. Tag me, tag Dr. Keisha, tag Wellness Realist Podcast so that I can say thank you. And if you want to go the extra mile to really show me your support, I would so appreciate it if you left a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find out about the show. And I would love to have you in our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe, where you can connect with other listeners, talk about the episodes, talk about random wellness, realness related things, and just grow our community. That's it for today's episode. Really cannot wait to hear what you guys think about this one, and I will chat with you again next time. Bye.